But Father, we ask you expectantly to open your word to us. We ask that you would, by your word, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. And I pray that you would, through this passage, clear up our vision of what the church is, how she should work, and how we all fit within it. Lord, you have been so merciful to us to make us members of Christ's body, a part of his bride uh, who does await the day of her purity when her faith is made sight. And until then, Lord, make us faithful, make us humble, and make us eager to preserve the unity of your church. And please do it now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last summer, I read a book or listened to a book called Boys in the Boat. And the book tells the story of the University of Washington men's rowing team back in the 1930s. It's a fantastic story. It's really it's a classic American tale of these boys who grew up in the Depression, coming out of the Depression, and they've got their sights set on the 1936 Olympics, which were in Berlin, Germany. And the story, I mean, it's really thrilling. Um, and I didn't know anything about rowing before reading the book. Uh, I'd seen crew teams on, on the water at times, but I didn't know anything about the finer points of rowing. But what struck me as I read the book was how the author and people involved in this sport, they speak poetically about rowing, the way that you can't really speak about like, football. Football and poetry don't go together. But rowing and, and poetry do, apparently. Uh, the man who built boats for this team was a guy named George Pocock, who was famous for making these incredible boats. I mean, eventually everyone used the boats and the oars that this man built. But he was also a sage of the, the sport. Uh, and he described rowing as a symphony of motion. And that's really what it is. Everything has to work rightly, and all of the rowers must work together in order for this thing to go the way it's supposed to go. When one rower slumps, he says, the entire crew goes with him. And even though all the rowers are doing basically the same thing, uh, you've got a, a slightly different responsibility based on where you're sitting in, in the boat. And the one thing that each rower must share in common is the total forfeiture of self-interest. At one point, the author says, no other sport demands and rewards the complete abandonment of the self the way rowing does. Great crews may have men or women of exceptional talent or strength, but they have no stars. The team effort, the perfectly synchronized flow of muscle, oars, boat, and water, the single, whole, unified, and beautiful symphony that a crew in motion becomes is all that matters. Not the individual, not the self. So there are multiple descriptions of the sport like that throughout the book. And if you just isolated some of those descriptions, you wouldn't be able to tell if he's talking about rowing or talking about the church. I kept thinking that as I was reading the book. Is, this sounds like a book about the church. Well, Ephesians does happen to be a book about the church. Paul spends a lot of time talking about it. And he does, Paul, what he so often does. He spends the first half of the book uh, describing these glorious truths about God and about his gospel, how he made Christ the head of the church, how he's reconciled God to, or sinners to God and to one another by Christ's death. So God has united sinners, even Jews and Gentiles, into one new man, the church. 
And then he spends the second half of the letter, starting with our passage today, chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, helping to see his readers, helping his readers to see what, what, that, what these truths demand of them. So in our passage, Paul begins the second half of the letter, and he talks about the inner life of the church, what makes a church go. And the, the, the resonances between rowing and the church are so strong, especially the way that he highlights unity and humility and love. These virtues make the church go. And by God's grace, these things abound here at Kenwood. Uh, but even so, it's good for us to occasionally hear from the Lord about what kind of attitudes and priorities should mark us, should mark a church, especially for the preservation of unity. And unity is so fragile. And we could be, you know, Lord willing, moving towards significant change in the life of our church. And it's in those moments that, that unity is even more fragile. So we need Paul's instructions now as much as ever. So beginning in chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So here's Paul writing as a prisoner for the Lord. You could also take that, a prisoner in the Lord. He views the entirety of his life, even his imprisonment, as enveloped in the Lordship of Christ. And he's urging his readers, he's urging us, to view our lives that way. He tells them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This call that Christians receive, the call to follow Christ, comes with expectations. When you belong to God, there is a certain way you ought to live, a way that shows you worthy of that calling. And sometimes you hear parents, if they're correcting their children, they'll say, that's not what we do. I've heard one of my friends, uh, Paul Tennant, he'll tell his boys, Tenants don't fuss. You know, tenants don't do that. And what he's telling them is you need to act in a way, act worthy of the name that, that you've got. And Christians have received, we've received this call to bear God's name. And Paul's telling us to walk in a manner worthy of it. Specifically, this idea of walking worthily is in regard to how Christians should live with and relate to one another. So going on, specifically, we are to live or to walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So all these things in verse 2, humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, love, what do they all have in common? Well, for one, they all sound very Christ-like. They all require us to think less of ourselves and to serve others. I mean, what is humility but a disregard for yourself for the sake of others? And what is gentleness? It's meekness and a willingness to lay down your rights and patience and loving forbearance. Be slow to take offense. Learn to deal with the shortcomings of those around you. This is what it looks like to walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Deny yourself love others, and extend uh, the patience to others that you have received from the Lord. And notice that all these things are in the service of unity. They all prioritize the whole over the self. It says, you know, I might do something differently, or I wish something would happen my way, but I'm going to lay down my preferences for the sake of 
unity. In verse 3, Paul says we can't assume unity. We've got to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Make every effort to protect it. It's so precious, and it's a work of the Spirit. Right? It's a unity that comes from the Spirit. But that doesn't mean we don't have to work for it. This is just how the Christian life works. Right? God makes promises. He has plans. And yet we are commanded to work to attain them, to see them through. We've got to work for the unity of the Spirit, which is held together by the bond of peace. If you look over in chapter 1, verse 10, you see Paul, has, Paul says that God plans to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. There's a cosmic coming together uh, in Christ when all things come under his rule, but it will start with his people. It will start in the church. We will show the universe what it looks like to be unified under Christ's reign. So let's, as his church, commend these things when we see them in one another. Let's value and elevate the things that God values and elevates. If you see humility, gentleness, patience, love, commend it. And thankfully, you don't, you don't need to look very hard around here. These things, there is much to commend. So Paul then grounds this call to, to unity in seven other unities. Verse 4, there's one body and one spirit. What's that one body? It's the church. Christ died for one people. That was the point of much of chapter 2. If you look actually at chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, you see God has created one new man in the place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. There is one people of God, one body, and that body is indwelt and animated by one spirit. So one body, one spirit, just, verse 4, just as you were called to the hope, to the one hope that belongs to your call. What is this one hope? It's the hope that God is going to reconcile all things in Christ. That is our shared common hope, and it's rock solid. You can be as sure that God is going to do this as you can be sure of anything. And that is far better than much of what the world has to offer in terms of hope. We don't set our hopes on financial security, on some sort of relational fulfillment, on a job. We set our hope on the fact that God is going to reconcile all things in his Son. And there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. These three are closely tied, aren't they? They're one Lord, Christ, one faith, one body of doctrine centered around this one Lord. Not, there's not a Jewish faith and a Gentile faith. There is one faith. We recite something like this every week together. And there is one baptism, which only makes sense because there's only one Lord into whom we are baptized. And verse 6, there's one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. It's interesting. God, God is not typically referred to as the Father of all things. That, that designation is usually reserved for how he relates to his children. But over in Ephesians 3, you don't need to look there, but in 3, 14, and 15, uh, Paul refers to God as the Father from whom every family has been named. 
So there's a sense in which he is the father of all. I mean, certainly every person who has ever taken a breath has known God's kindness, has known his fatherly love. And there's only one such God. So this unity that Paul is calling us to embrace is rooted in all of these realities. There's one body, one hope, one faith, one baptism. And then you've got the triune God in there, right? We've got one spirit, one Lord, Christ, and one God and Father. Our unity is rooted in God himself, in the love and joy shared in the Godhead. So Paul starts this passage with these relational virtues. Why do you think that's the case? In the first half of the letter, the focus was cosmic, right? That God gave Christ as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He saved us by grace. We are his workmanship. And he has united us by breaking down the wall of hostility in his flesh. How do you not read those things and get riled up? Not get riled up. They're glorious and they're massive. It's easy to read chapters 1 and 3 and think, man, I love the church. But Paul, I think, starts with these relationships because the test of your love for Christ's church is whether or not you love your church. 1 John 4.20 says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. If we love the church, we will love the people in our church. If we cherish the unity that Christ has accomplished, we will love the people that we see. So beware loving the abstract and not caring for the concrete reality. A married man who mistreats his wife cannot claim to love and value marriage. And a Christian who does not love the people in his church cannot claim to love the church. Now, there are different levels of unity. There's unity within the church universal, uh, between denominations, between churches, united around the gospel. Those are good, important aspects of unity. But the emphasis here, and in much of the New Testament, is on unity in the local congregation. So when we hear all these one another commands in the New Testament, it should not be hard for us to imagine how these apply. It's us. It's this, this room of people. That's the test of whether unity in the body of Christ means anything to us. So we're to walk in a manner worthy of our call by being humble, working for unity, and then from there, starting in verse 7, Paul describes a diversity that exists within this unity. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So a church is comprised of individuals. And Christ gives to each one of us a particular grace, a particular gift to serve his church. Grace was given to each of us, it says, each of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. He's going to focus on a few specific gifts later, but now he's talking to all of us. Everyone who has received the call of eternal life has also received a gift with which to serve Christ's people. So if you've come to Kenwood from a different church uh, in another place, and we have a lot of transients, and maybe you were doing something different in that church that doesn't need to get done here, just know that Jesus is sovereign enough to uh, give you the grace you need to serve where you are. 
He is Lord of our abilities, our desires, and he doesn't make mistakes when he puts us in different places. So gifts don't exist in the abstract, right? They're to be put to use. So if, if you've wondered, I just don't know what my gift is. I don't know what to do. I would just encourage you to look around, see where there's a need, see where you might be put to use, and then you might be surprised at the joy you get serving somewhere that you haven't before. Finding out what you're gifted to do doesn't often come through taking some sort of inventory of yourself. I think it might be better to take an inventory of the church where you are and see where you can be put to work. Best way to find out what you're gifted to do is to start doing things. I actually heard a conversation just a couple weeks ago between two women here um, where one was saying to the other, you must have a lot of experience doing this this thing that you do uh, because you're great at it. And the other gal responded, actually, no, I was just asked to do it. And so I started doing it. And it turns out I really like it. I think that is just so often how these things work. There's a need. Someone meets the need. And lo and behold, they love serving. So Jesus gives gifts, and he gives them by his measure. There's a variance in what's received. To some people, he gives a greater measure of gifting. Think of the parable of the talents where there are five talents given to one, two to another, and one to another. And the concern is not how many talents someone has, it's what they do with it, right? Those who are faithful with their talents receive the same commendation. So we cannot let envy and jealousy rob us of our unity and rob us of uh, our ability to exercise our gifts. If you see someone who seems to have a greater measure of gifting than you, Just thank God for that person, and thank God for the gift he's given them, thank God for the gifts he's given you, and then be faithful. We're responsible to Christ to be faithful with what he's given to us. And verse 8, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. This is a quotation from Psalm 68 that Jim read earlier. That, That psalm recalls the Lord defeating his enemies And then either the Lord or Moses ascending on high, leading a host of captives. And Paul is reading that as an anticipation for what Christ does after his victory over the powers of evil, right? He ascended on high to sit down at the Father's right hand. And the captives here, this isn't just those that the Lord makes captives in his victory, but the the ones he takes with him, the ones that he sets free. You think of the Israelite slaves coming out. You think of us, those who are enslaved by sin that he frees and takes with him. And the Lord always plunders his enemies, doesn't he? You think of the Israelites. How did they build the tabernacle? With the plunder of the Egyptians. David builds the temple with the plunder of the nations he has uh, defeated. Even those who came back from exile were given a material with which to build the next temple, and the Lord is doing the same thing in his church. He has plundered us from the evil one, and he is building his church with us. And Paul, I think, may also have in mind Pentecost, where Christ gives the gift of the Holy Spirit after ascending. But the point is that Christ ascended on high, he had ransomed sinners, and then he gave gifts to them. Then in verses 9 and 10, And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far 
above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So for Christ to ascend must mean that he also descended. This is his, his incarnation. When he, he descended, took on flesh. And I think it also includes his, his death when he descended to the grave. Some have used this verse to argue that Christ descended into hell. I don't think that's what Paul has uh, in mind. He's saying that the one who walked among us here in the lower regions, the earth, has now ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And that's the purpose, right? That he might fill all things. And one way he's going to do that is through the gifts he gives to his people. Christ descends, he lives, is crucified, rises from the grave, ascends to the Father, and then gives, gives gifts to build up the church so that he might fill all things. So he gives us gifts, no matter how insignificant we might think they are. He uses these gifts for cosmic purposes. He will fill all things, and he uses gifts of mercy, gifts of encouragement, gifts of service, and all the rest to, to let the filling begin. And then in verse 11, he mentions just a few of the gifts that he gives. Paul mentions these. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. And these aren't just gifts that Paul names. These are people, right? It's not just he gave apostleship and he gave prophecy. No, he gave the apostles and the prophets. So the apostles and prophets, these are the ones over in 2.20 uh, that Paul says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. These are the ones who revealed the mystery of Christ to the church. They were a unique gift at a unique time uh, before the scripture was complete. They spoke the word of God. But Jesus also gave the evangelists, those who spread the gospel. You think of Philip in Acts, who Luke calls Philip the evangelist. That's a gift God uses to build and extend his body. And he gives shepherds and teachers. That word for shepherd is where we get the term pastor. And it could be that these are actually just one office, uh, that a teacher doesn't have the article in front of it. Uh, it's just the shepherds and teachers. But I don't know that we need to read it like that. Uh, certainly all shepherds teach, right? But not all those who teach are shepherds. Well, Paul mentions these five gifts, but of course this is not exhaustive, right? There are other gifts. There are other places in the New Testament that name other gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, 1 Peter 4. But none of these lists are complete, and none of them are the same. They're all, they all emphasize gifts that are relevant to the situation the author is addressing. But here, all the gifts that Paul names share a concern for the ministry of the word. So apostles and prophets spoke the word. Evangelists spread the word. And pastors and teachers teach and preach the word. So why would he focus on these? Because the word is so vital to unity. If we're not united around the one faith and one Lord, then our, our unity is superficial. Christian unity is substantive. And that substance is the word. And we saw earlier that one way to promote unity is to walk in humility, to walk in love with one another. 
Here, another way to promote unity is to pray for like-mindedness. Pray for the ministry of the word. It's really easy to, especially in a church like this where we are just so well-fed, uh, to take good teaching and preaching for granted. But if you're curious about how it affects unity, just imagine the opposite. Uh, imagine someone getting up here besides today and not just teaching poorly, but teaching falsehoods, teaching lies. Uh, hopefully, we would be united in addressing that problem. But you could see how a prolonged situation like that would disrupt church life. If some charismatic, compelling person comes in and teaches things that just are a little off from the truth, gains a few adherents, and all of a sudden you've got a schism. So pray for like-mindedness. Pray for the ministry of the word. And exercise your gifts. Our unity is preserved not just by the ministry of the word, as vital as that is, but by the diverse gifts that the Lord gives to us. So show gratitude for those who put their gifts to work in less visible ways. When our differences work together, it's a beautiful thing. There is a diversity within unity that puts God on display uniquely. Right? Unity is not uniformity. It's not sameness. It's people who are different with different gifts working toward the same end. You know, in, in music, uh, you can play all kinds of notes by themselves. You can play a scale, go up and down the scale, and they all sound great. But if you play a few of those notes at the same time, play a simple chord, you've got, all, you've got different notes uh, who don't cease to be their own note, combining to make something that is more beautiful, with uh, more texture and more color to it. The beauty is enhanced. There's a unity formed by uh, even three diverse tones creating something better than they are by themselves. So exercise the diverse gifts that the Lord has given to you. That in itself is a promotion of a unity. Next, Paul tells us why Jesus gives these gifts to the church. It's to aim for maturity. That's where we're headed. And he gives us some positive reasons in 12 and 13 and then some negative ones. So he gives us these gifts, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So God gives to the church pastors and teachers to equip the saints to do the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ. So God wants not just pastors to do the work of the ministry. He wants all of us to minister to one another. To, our church covenant says to work for the continuance of a faithful evangelical ministry. That's on all of us to, to see that through. And God gives pastors and teachers for building up the body of Christ. That's the same word, that word for building up, that Jesus used when he said, uh, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So as we build each other up, we do it with this divine guarantee that Jesus is going to do it. And this equipping and upbuilding will happen, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith 
and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And notice who is expected to attain to this unity, all of us, until we all attain to this unity. So we pursue the truth together, and we attempt to exhaust the inexhaustible depths of who Christ is together, the knowledge of the Son of God. And we push on to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We are his body, and bodies grow, right? And we are to grow to maturity, to full manhood as the body of Christ. Maybe you've heard one of us say this at some point, but this is our vision for the church. If you've ever wondered, what is Kenwood's vision? The answer is Ephesians 4, 12, and 13. That the church would be equipped for ministry, built up until we attain unity and maturity. And that's what we want, equipping for ministry and maturity. Growth, growth in numbers can be nice, but growth in maturity is what the New Testament is after. And that's, what, that's where we're going to put our priorities. So let's help one another walk toward maturity. Now, Jesus gave the church the task of making disciples. The goal is not just to manufacture decisions uh, to make Christians, but to make disciples. <clears throat> so if you want to help one another walk toward maturity, help your brothers and sisters in Christ, and think about discipling somebody. Or if, if you're someone who wants to grow, then find someone who may be a little older than you, a little further down the, the road, and ask them to help you. Ask them to answer some of your questions. Ask them to uh, let you into their life. And if you are someone who's slightly further along in the faith, it is not an arrogant thing to invite someone younger than you into your life. You know, Paul invited Christians to just imitate him. And so it's not unchristian for us to do the same, to invite people to just watch, see what the Christian life looks like. So let's disciple one another. And then as we do that, we will walk toward maturity together. Because if we don't strive for maturity, we are, as verse 14 says, vulnerable, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. If we are not growing in maturity, then we are children. Gullible, no grounding, no direction. Maturity can distinguish between good and evil, between truth and error. Immaturity cannot. And Paul uses this image of a, uh, being tossed around the waves like a boat with no, with no ballast or no rudder to guide it, just at the mercy of the wind. And we see this in parts of the world, don't we? Where, and even here in the United States, unfortunately, where the faith of so many is just so shallow. It's an inch deep. And these people are at the mercy of whoever is the most compelling and effective communicator. Whatever teaching seems to tickle their ears. This is why so many of the most popular Christian books are just not helpful. I did a little, this is not the most accurate barometer, but I went on Amazon to click on what are the most popular Christian theology books. I mean, it was a discouraging 30 seconds I spent looking at that page. <laughs> a lot of them were just these you know, heaven tourism books. 
Uh, that is not theology. Uh, Paul had a vision, and he shut his mouth. Uh, people are hungry for the truth. They just don't know where to find it. Sadly, there are people who are willing to fill that void. And these people, Paul says, use human cunning and craftiness in deceitful schemes. So behind so many of these, this bad teaching that people consume is impure motive, uh, cunning and deceit. And behind those kind of motives is the evil one himself. That's not to be so for us. Rather, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So in verse 14, you've got, you've got lies being spoken in deceitfulness. And here you've got truth that is supposed to be spoken in love. And you know, a worthwhile study, if you had some time this afternoon, is to go through Ephesians and uh, track the role of love and all the things that are to be done in love in the book of Ephesians. So we don't merely speak the truth. We're not just to be nice to one another, though, either, right? We're to speak the truth to one another and to do it in love. So we're not seeking just a soft niceness with no substance, but an active, truthful love for one another. And that will grow us up into Christ. Verse 16, this Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each parking part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The body grows because it's attached to Christ. The same with the vine and the branch. But it also says that it's joined and held together by every joint and part working properly. So in order for the church to grow and function the way it's supposed to, we are to be connected to our head, to the Lord Christ, and every part needs to work rightly, just like in the rowing boat. When one person slumps, the whole boat slumps. And when the whole boat works rightly, the thing flies. And in the church, when every part functions rightly, the body will grow and build itself up in love. In that book, Boys in the Boat, one of the reasons that boat of eight guys was so uniquely successful was because of the way they viewed themselves. Uh, there was just a, a pervasive humility among these eight guys. Maybe that comes from uh, growing up in the Depression. I, I don't know. But the, the story focuses on one of these guys, this guy named Joe Rance. And the author says that, that Joe always thought he was the weak link in the boat. But he learned later in life, you know, all, all eight of these guys stayed pretty close with one another. He learned that, this is what the author says, that every boy in the boat felt exactly the same. Every one of them believed he was simply lucky to be rowing in the boat that he didn't really measure up to the obvious greatness of the other boys, and that he might fail the others at any moment. You know, it is a real privilege to be a part of Christ's body. It means that God has decided to set his love on us. And it means that Christ's death was for you. It means that he has taken your your stony, stubborn heart that did not want to love God, and he's replaced it 
with the heart of flesh that actually loves God. He did that. And then he puts you in a community of Christians. If that's not true of you, then if you haven't experienced the change that happens when you repent of your sins and trust in Christ, then all of the privileges that are in this passage, the unity, the love, the, the truth for one another, it just does not belong to you. But they can by repentance and faith and embracing this Jesus. But for those of us who have believed, not only has God created in you a love for him, he's placed you around people who love him and who love you. you know, the, world, the world just craves community. And the Lord gives it to us in his church. So look around at the people around you and feel what those rowers felt, that we are just fortunate to be rowing in the same boat. You know, last summer, uh, when Keith and Katie Christensen moved away, I, was, I happened to be in their apartment the day they moved, and there were all these people there helping them pack up and move. And at one point, Keith said to his wife, Katie, we are in the presence of Christian greatness. As he was looking around and seeing all these people serve. And that's true for us every Sunday. And we are fortunate to be a part of this boat. People are serving, using their gifts. You know, Jesus did not die to purchase a school or a, a parachurch organization, as great as those things might be. He didn't die to redeem the United States government or even the family, as important as those things are for us. He died to redeem a people by his own blood, and that people is the church, the society of pardoned rebels. So let us do what we can to protect what he has purchased. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do marvel at what you've done for us, not leaving us hopeless and without God in the world, but giving us a certain hope making us your own sons and daughters. And Father, we pray that you would create humility in us, that, that we would be marked by a deference for our brothers and sisters. We pray that Christ-likeness would abound here and that you would preserve us from any harm. For we do not want to see your church marred in any way. We want our public witness to increase Lord, we ask that you would use our unity, use our love and humility to do it. Lord, cause our love to flow even outside of these walls, into the neighborhoods where we live, into our workplaces, into our families, that more and more people would know Christ. We pray that you would make us holy and be glorified in Christ's body. It's in his name we pray. Amen.